morning, good afternoon, good evening, and good night, wherever you are in the world, and welcome to another episode of Endurance Chat. I am Floodman11, and as it ticks over to June 1st in part of the world, it is time to ramp up towards the biggest event for us in the year. It is time to talk about the Le Mans 24 Hours for 2019. I'm excited, you should be excited, and I've got two very excited people with me in this room today. I have in part of the world where it is already June 1st, Kiwi Chris 1709. Hello. I'm excited. Yay, someone's excited. And in a part of the world where it's not June 1st yet, where it's still friggin' May, Cookie Monster FL. It's Le Mans, baby. Yeah. It, it is Le Mans, baby. So why are we so excited for this race in the French countryside? Someone explain it to me. It is the, uh, it's the greatest uh, endurance race uh, still. It's one of the longest running uh, major uh, motorsports races that is being conducted still. And uh, it's part of the Triple Crown. Uh, <laughs> Mystique, history, uh, magic, dragons. No. Dragons? No. Clearwater are racing this year. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, they got a nice dragon on. Oh, actually, have we seen the livery for them yet? Anyway, but uh, yeah, it's it's fantastic. It's why we're all here. Um, and I think it really it it literally has its reach in every single endurance. I'd say series that you see. There's either some teams that have been longstanding representatives. There's been uh, team owners, drivers, anything. There's been so much that's happened at Le Mans that's reached out to every other aspect of endurance racing that uh, to ignore it would be uh, just wrong sir wrong i don't think uh, it's just endurance racing i think it's racing in general there's there's an old saying that w- we all know here um and um, most of our regular listeners will know but it's everything comes back to le mans or it all comes back to le mans everything about motor racing endurance racing even car design has come back to this 13.6 kilometer track through the french countryside it is part of the history and folklore of motor racing it's ingrained in every aspect of yeah motorsports because le mans is a living test lab it's a it's a race in which new technologies get pushed to the absolute limits and the humans that create those technologies and drive those technologies and engineer those technologies are pushed to the absolute limits as well it's the ultimate test of man and machine and that is why we love the thing Mm-hmm. And it's why the teams love the thing as well. It's one of those rare races where the race is far, far more important than the championship. Mm. And I think there's only one or two other series in the world where that happens. Maybe, you, I'm not too sure on the American side of things, maybe IndyCar with the Indy 500. Maybe I'd say that's one of the races which is more important than the championship. And I'd also and- put, maybe for the Australians in the audience, the V8 Supercars, the Bathurst 1000, almost as important as the championship or about that. But otherwise, it's a very lean list. And yeah. when you think about what this race has produced in terms of the technology, and with, for example, with 15 years fifteen years ago, you go back to the start of the diesel era, hybrids now. Mm. And even it's further just, back than that, things like disc brakes, which are standard on most modern motor vehicles, were first raced at Le Mans. Caused one of the biggest accidents in history, but they were first raced at Le Mans. Don't forget turbine vehicles. We had those as well. That also saw Indy 500. I, I mean, I, I, I going back to Indy 500, I agree with that. Uh, I, I mean, I would say Le Mans, for me, it is the same relevance. I mean, Indy 500, to me, yes, the race is extremely important. And I'd say it holds the same reverence for IndyCar fans that endurance you know, racing fans have for Le Mans. The, the problem is that, for me, is that Indy 500 is a regional 
series, essentially. And so a lot of that mystique and a lot of that interest, yes, while the, you have international talent that for drivers and sometimes teams, you're not really having a lot of inter- international viewership outside of major stations in major uh, countries around the world. So to me, the Le Mans attracts not only uh, viewers uh, that you get around the world, just uh, it, it seems like in general, you just get viewers from around the world everywhere. Um, you get teams that are, that show up there. You get OEMs that are from around the world that show up there. It's a it's just a global event. The mm. entire thing is global. Now, granted, Indy 500 is too, but it's a strictly American sport that's globally televised. And I feel like Le Mans is the closest what we can get to like a global congruence of essentially the best teams and the best racers and the best everything for one race. And that's supposed to be this race in June. So. Mm. Uh, that's kind of I, I don't know that's that's to me where Le Mans separates itself from almost everything else Monaco Grand Prix everything else it's just it's this central event for racing and I I can't remember any other ones that would come close I, I that, that is a very good call and if you look at the other uh, aspects of the the so-called triple crown of motorsport you've got the Monaco Grand Prix which is over in an hour and a half you've got the Indy 500 which might be two and a half hours I'm not too sure I haven't watched a full Indy in three. full before three hours and then you've got this which is a 24-hour endurance test uh, and it's it's unlike anything else in motorsports really uh, not just because of the the series and and the and the event but also the track uh the way that the classes are set up uh it's just everything about this event is special in its own historic way and that's what this podcast episode is meant to meant to do it's meant meant to help you understand every little nuance maybe not every little nuance but enough of the little nuances of this event to make to yeah to help you understand what makes this event so special and why it is the third jewel in the triple crown and one of the reasons it's so special is because of the history of this place. We've been racing here since, what, 1923? Yes. And you can look back to the stories we've had here, the winners we've had here, the marks that have come in. Uh, you look, you know, back to the pre-war era where it was really just very much a test. And though we had drivers doing 24 hours by themselves. Almost by themselves, yeah. And yeah. and remember, that at that stage, motor motoring itself would have been all very new. So this was hmm. not not just a, an endurance test. This was, can we get a car to run 24 hours straight? Hmm. And, and that, sort of, that sort of was the question that this event came from. And yeah, then... And there was- they were still running like two and a half, three thousand k's back then. Mm, and that's that's no mean feat uh, at that stage. That would be you. You couldn't be able to do that in a horse and carriage. <laughs> <laughs> Your horse would be very, very tired. Just a little bit. And then you know, look looking beyond beyond that, that some of the stories like the 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 World War Two on wheels era between Jaguar and Aston Martin versus the likes of uh, Mercedes. Uh, which all came to a head in 1955 in, in the Le Mans disaster, the biggest motor racing accident in in history ever. Uh, it's what, Cookie? You're 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 our 1955 expert here. After your <laughs> massive master post on that a few years ago, which is still, I'd go back and read it because it was so fantastic. How? What's the estimated death toll in that accident? Uh, I believe uh, estimated eighty two, and uh, yeah, thanks, Flood. I'm I'm, I'm working on my uh, Lamar historian license, so I'm almost there. Probably a few more years. <laughs> yeah, so, so we'll get there. But uh, yeah. I believe it was around eighty two was the rough estimate. There's been seventy nine, eighty five. It's just kind of I think everybody went in the middle for eighty two. So yeah, can you imagine uh, eighty two people in one motor racing accident that died? 
Like we all, we we say it all comes back to Le Mans, but yeah, you know, in history and in you know motor racing safety as well, it's a landmark event, and some countries still have bans on motor racing because of the events of 1955. Yeah, Switzerland was the famous one that that didn't allow circuit racing. They would allow hill climbs, but that's about it. I believe they might have lifted that technically now. Maybe yeah, Formula E is racing around Bern in a couple of weeks. Oh, well, there yeah, you go. So. Yep. So it's uh. So some of the last bastions are, are finally leaving. But I mean, you know, that's that's a huge that's a huge in- incident. And I, I feel, I mean, I, beyond some rally incidents where you had you know um, spectators injured, sports car racing really bared the brunt of a lot of the really terrible accidents early on. And Le Mans 1955 is no exception. Mm. Um, I think a point too to make for a lot of the history is just and the the uniqueness is just the track itself and track layout. I mean, the early years in the twenties and thirties, you're essentially just doing point to point races in small towns in France. You just basically find the town square for the you know Le Mans, and then you basically go out to yeah Mulsanne, then you go to Arnage, you know. So you just basically hitch a bunch of different little towns together, and then you just make a circuit. And so you'd have dirt roads that were just straight, so you wouldn't have a lot of turns. So it was pretty much just making sure you could get as fast as you could and then slow down enough to you so you could gradually turn and it was just kind of it evolved and the track itself was was built like that too there was really no safety aspects of it either there was just no thought of it mm, you'd use and, hay, bale, hay bales and dirt bankings as your runoff right. Mm-hmm. right and as the cars became lighter and smaller and faster you started to eventually have to narrow the track and get it down and it's just clear in 1955 those two levels weren't on the same page and the cars were just way too fast for the track designed for them yeah and and that was one of the reasons why that accident happened that's why we've seen a lot of difference in track design over the years it's because of how technology changes and that's all again comes back to Le Mans there's some other really famous eras and really famous marks that have graced this track and one of the one of the ones that's actually really very relevant at the moment is Ferrari versus Ford in the late 60s now that was all because of uh Ford trying to take over Ferrari and then Enzo Ferrari himself not signing the deal at the 11th hour and then so Ford basically went well, we're going to build a car and beat you at your most famous motor race, and that's going to be because you didn't let us buy you. And that's that's how the story came about, basically. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yep. And then came four years of utter dominance by the American mate. Basically. A grand old tale of vengeance. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And they're actually running a bunch of uh, a bunch of heritage liveries this year for to celebrate a bunch of those wins, the Ford sale. And we'll talk about that a little later on. But uh, if you have been around motorsport media recently, you might have seen that there's actually a movie being made about the 1966 Le Mans, uh, Ford's first victory, which is coming out later this year, which is really exciting. You don't really see a lot of sports car racing make it into popular media at all, really. Yeah, and a lot of A-list actors, too, portraying Carol Shelby and Ken Miles. So two characters that I would absolutely love to see on a big screen just from what you know historically, you know, just from their personalities and how they conducted themselves and, you know, all the videos and stories that they've said all, you know, throughout the years. Mm-hmm. I This is a great story to tell, and regardless of whether or not you, you know, because we all know Ford's juggernaut, so to see a potential underdog story from a team that's basically spending insane amounts of, you know, not team, <laughs> the entire company that's, just, that's outspending Ferrari by ungodly amounts of money to see them win might not be as underdog as you would think, but there's definitely elements to it where 
you know, realistically, the Americans had absolutely no idea what they were doing, trying to go endurance racing. All they knew is they wanted to beat Ferrari and they had to do it in, in, in ways that they had never done before. And so I think that aspect of it will hopefully be the theme of that movie and not necessarily like, Oh, no, Ford was just trying. They were just trying to give it the best shot. And they just do it, you know, like, <laughs> yeah, but yeah. the story, the real life story is fantastic as well. So I encourage, I encourage people to watch it just to learn about it. So, yeah, yeah I, love, I also love the fact that they had to rely on three Kiwis. To, to get that 96, that 66. Uh, moving on. But, but, they, <laughs> but they're going to be portrayed by people like Ben Collins and like, I think Denny Hogg being played by Ben Collins in the movie. That's pretty cool. You must be so, very excited for it though, wouldn't you? Uh, you I am. Parochial Kiwi. Yeah, I am absolutely looking forward to this. That's going to be great. Oh, you're the worst. We'll move on. Okay, we'll, we'll just move on because we can't let Kiwis talk about New Zealanders for too long. Otherwise, it just becomes a bit too much. So what <laughs> makes this race different from other 24 hours events? We've got some great 24 hour events that we cover. We've got like things like the 24 hours of Nürburgring, uh, the 24 hours of Spa, and we've got some smaller events like 24 hours Barcelona, Dubai, etc. What makes Le Mans different? Well, those 24-hour events are on racetracks. That's a good start. <laughs> this, these, this is pretty much on a public road with a little bit of racetrack in between. Yeah, there's, that's, that's there's a not really point. anything like this. Uh, the track length as well. well yeah, so what about I mean, the track length? There's a little bit longer, too. Uh, well, it's, it's not the longest racetrack uh, that's in existence. That would probably be Isle of Man, and, well, that's public review. But close circuit would be Nürburgring, uh, the Nordschleife circuit. So it doesn't hit the max... From there, but what it does do is that because it utilizes public roads, not a whole lot of public roads are constantly twisty turning like racetracks. So it has long, long straights to connect basically different famous corners. And the teams over the years have had to sacrifice downforce for speed while, you know, being faster on the straights, sacrificing the corners and vice versa. So it's always a constant tug and pull between what is the most efficient way to maximize. Uh, your strengths and you know to minimize your weaknesses around Le Mans because it's not unlike any other track due to its length and everything else that goes along with it so teams in the past would literally make body styles and types specifically and they still do now today that are geared for Le Mans specifically and not for any other track they would never make another specific shell for any other track other than Le Mans so I think that in itself is the most extraordinary aspect to endurance racing, you know, from a prototype standpoint. So, mm. And it's a good thing you bring that up because we'll go through this in a second when we do a full track preview. But at Le Mans, you go from about 100 kilometers per hour to over 300 kilometers per hour five times in a lap. That's five times in a lap where you're stressing your engine, your gearbox and your braking to its absolute limits. Can you imagine doing that in a road car for 24 hours straight? It, it would be ridiculous. You'd just burn through everything so quickly. Even in a, just a normal race car, even in like a touring car, it would just burn through components so quickly. And that's mm. one of the things about Le Mans that makes it such a challenge. The cars here, the top class cars here, will do more than a season's distance in an F1 season in one race, in 24 hours. They'll do a longer longer distance than a full F1 season. Now, that, to me, is absurd. Mm-hmm. And they do it while we're weaving through traffic, while at night where you can't see a damn thing in front of you. It's And it's absolutely mental. And these cars as well are engineered to within an inch of their life. They're built. So if things fail, which they're likely to do, you can just swap them out. Brilliant. In a, in a, in a space of seconds or minutes, depending on what the part is. 
Yeah. Or if you're Audi, you can just change the entire back half of the car in five minutes because, you know, Audi, right? <laughs> yeah. Okay, we've talked a little bit about the track, but I feel like it's time to do a proper run through the track. This is something that Kiwi and I prepared a little earlier. Hope you enjoy it. Here's where it all begins. 13.6 kilometers around the Circuit de la Sarthe. When the trickler waves, it will signal the start of this 24-hour event. 24 hours around this grueling track. First up is the Dunlop S. A sweeping right-hander brings you into this left-right chicane, all uphill. Prototype drivers will be approaching this about 260 kilometers per hour while the GT car is going to be much slower. It's important to be stable here on the brakes because this corner can catch you out if you're not paying attention. As you exit the corner, you crest to see one of the most famous sights in motorsport, the oldest, longest standing Dunlop Bridge anywhere in the world. Plunge down from the Dunlop Bridge and you approach the Forest S's. This beautifully cambered left-right chicane opens you out from the Bugatti circuit and towards the main road. It's imperative here, if you're a prototype driver, to make sure you're not losing time to the slower GT cars. But this is a 24-hour event. Sometimes, patience has to be at the forefront of your mind. If you are impatient through this section, the consequences can be immense. That's That's Alan McNish! Oh boy, that was... He went for a hole there, boys, that was not there. Crest the hill out of the Forest S's and you approach Terce Rouge, one of my favourite corners on the track. This is the corner that takes you from the permanent racetrack and slings you down the highway towards Mulsanne. All it takes is a little dab in the brake, tip the car into the right and floor it as the road drops away and opens up. Take a breath, because you've got a long journey ahead. So you've now exited Tetra Rouge and the real magic of Le Mans begins. First up, the road that takes you away from the township, the Rue Lignidroit de Honduras, more commonly known as the Mosanne Strait. It might as well be in road into the unknown. It's no wider than the two-lane highway. The Armco barriers are right next to you. You know they're saying you can't see the forest for the trees? Well, here, you can't see the racetrack for them. It's almost an eerie feeling for drivers making their way down the Mosanne. It's dangerous too, this traffic. The fact it's a public road, so covered in muck and oil and all sorts of rubbish from everyday traffic. And if poor weather comes to play, well, God help you. And then you add night time running. As a spectator, this piece of road is fascinating. For a driver, terrifying. In the old days, the prototypes were hitting 400Ks down the 6Ks of the Volkswagen Strait. With the addition of two chicanes, this speed's now closer to 340. The GTs are still hitting 300 as well, so they're not exactly slow. And these chicanes are no joke either. One to the right, one to the left. They're identical. Or so the drivers will tell you otherwise. And it's very easy to make the smallest mistake here, which should cause a major issue. Their action, and there's a big spin, there's a big accident oh, coming down towards the chicane. One of the toys, I think it's the number one car, but I'm not... The biggest test, though, comes at the end of it all. Mosan Corner. The prototypes come in at full noise through the right kink, and the GT is not far off that. And as soon as the car settles, you're hard on the anchors for that 90-degree turn to the right. There's a fair bit of runoff and a lot of curve. And misjudging your position here, or misjudging where you are in traffic, 
can be fatal to your chances in the race. Use every little bit of curbing and astroturf on the outside of Mulsan Corner as you bring the throttle up as early as you can to power down towards the fastest section of the track. As the night approaches, the sun will dip directly into your eye line down this narrow chute through the trees, making it almost impossible to see where the track ends and the grass begins. There's two kinks from Mulsan Corner down this hill, both taken entirely flat out. If you're following a slower car, you better make sure they see you before you're up alongside them. Rocky, do you copy me? At the bottom of the hill is my favourite part of the track. The road suddenly bends off to the right, a corner that only the bravest prototype drivers will take flat out, before a hard stop into a beautifully cambered left-hander taken at about third gear. This is Indianapolis, named because it's something you'd probably see at a super speedway more than you would in the French countryside. A short straight takes you from Indianapolis to Arnage, the slowest corner on the track. You've been going at 300 kilometers per hour for most of the last two minutes, but it's time to slow all that down to take this tight 90 degree right-hander with absolutely zero assistance from the track. There's a gravel trap on the outside and a tire barrier to catch you if you mess it up, but you're still a long way from home here. Any mistake at this part of the track could see you watching the rest of the race from the sidelines. So you've survived Arnage. Congratulations. You're heading back to the circuit now in the stadium section and to what you hope will be a great lap time. There's just one problem. The Porsche curves. You approach the Porsche curves at closer full speed after another full throttle blast up a narrow highway road with a distinct kink to the left there you take back. Then almost without warning the road goes right. You tip in on full commitment but you want to balance the car because as soon as you're done turning right you're turning left for a double apex sweeper by another double apex to the right. The hybrid prototypes will be averaging about 260 through the section of the track while turning with the walls right on the edge of the track with absolutely no runoff to speak of. If you catch GT traffic here, you're gonna drop several seconds, but it's better than the alternative. It's very hard to run too wide through the section, and it can be done. We've seen some great battles here in the past, but it's also incredibly easy to put yourself or someone else in the wall and in their race. And accidents in this part of the track are very rarely minor. That's it because big trouble for number 10, Dragon Speed. Again, is that the exit, the Porsche curves. Ooh. Um, Survive all of that, and you're met with an awkward left-hander at Corvette Corner. There's plenty of runoff on exit, but those equalised stewards, they're watching. And even though your lap is almost complete, it's important to not lose concentration now. You wouldn't want to throw your lap away here by making a very silly mistake. If you escape the close concrete walls in the Porsche curves, a small chicane will take you from that area down towards the last section of the track. Either you peel off here into the pit lane, or you brake hard for the Ford chicanes. A pair of very slow, very tight left-right chicanes. The curbs here are high and are the enemy of lap time, but battering your car's tyres, suspension and steering against these curbs for 24 hours could spell the end of your race. 
Even though you're almost at the finish line, it's important to keep your concentration. One small mistake here could end your 24 hours. Oh no, he's lost the wheel. The tyre's blown on the Toyota. It's all over now for the Toyota Challenge here at Le Mans. Make it across the last curb with Le Mans painted on the inside and you're greeted by the Stadium of Lasarth, filled with over 100,000 people in that one grandstand. This 13.6 kilometer journey takes only 200 seconds at the seat of a prototype and only around 35 seconds more in a GT car. It takes you from over 340 kilometers per hour to lower than 60 kilometers per hour, testing the absolute limits of your engine power, your braking, your gearing, your concentration, your handling, your management of this race. This is the ultimate test of endurance for man and machine. He doesn't have any gears. You can hear him trying to select the gears. No, three minutes, 47 seconds, and Alan Van Nish is out back in front. That's Pits the most out. extraordinary thing I've ever seen in motor racing. This is stressful stuff for them. Oh, my God, the Mercedes has taken off. That's Peter Dunbrick. Oh, no, it's come to a halt. The dream is over. The dream is over for Hugh Deschonac and Peugeot. Because this is the Grand Prix of Endurance. This is the Circuit de la Sarthe. And this is the 24 Hours of Le Mans. Oof. Man... Just listening to that gives me goosebumps. There's something special about this track. And I think part of it for me is the fact that you can point to any of these corners, any of these straights even, and point to something significant happening at that corner and at that part of the track. Oh, it's brilliant. So, mm-hmm. guys, what's your favorite parts of the track? We'll start with Cookie first. Uh, Mulsanne or straight, the Honduras straight. The Honduras? Okay, why, why the Mulsanne? Uh, well, it's neutered now with the chicanes, but uh, that is by far the most unique, like straight in motorsport. I feel like, and I feel like that in itself is what gives Le Mans its character and its terrifying legend, and essentially all the aspects of reliability are because of that long straight. So, to me, that's that is the most uh, I important and most symbolic for me. That's actually very beautiful the way you've put that. I, I have an issue to take with you saying it's neutered. So while, yes, in pure speed terms, it might be neutered, I think it's actually a more difficult engineering challenge to have have the two chicanes in the middle where you have to slow down from that top speed and then get through those chicanes and then bring it all the way back up. Yes, it's not the same as being able to plow through at 380 kilometers per hour at the seat of a Porsche 962 in the mid-80s, but I think it's actually a more difficult engineering challenge than it was. Yeah, I, I I don't disagree with you there. I, I just think that uh, that the unique aspect of, of seeing cars literally pegged at max for, you know, however many seconds, basically going down a long straight, just going over undulations of hills is just, yeah, I mean, what you said is what I think it is. It's beautiful. I mean, uh, some of those shots in the 80s are just are just so mesmerizing to me that I, I, I love that that portion of the track. So, mm. um, but yeah, no, they still go just as fast. And that's the insane part is that, um, they're able to almost make up the difference, even with adding two chicanes to it. So. It's yeah, it's crazy. Uh, for those listening, uh, I want you to plug into YouTube. Uh, Derek Bell, nineteen eighty three, on board at Le Mans. So uh, this is a video that's pretty 
semi-well-known nowadays. The speed that he gets to on an outlap at Le Mans, it's hard to keep up with the things flying by him as he goes down the Le Mans straight. So definitely check that out. If you're not sure where to find that, um, it is linked in the Everything You Need to Know thread that is on the front page of the r slash WEC subreddit at the moment. So check that out if you haven't seen that yet. Kiwi, your favorite part of the track. Can I just say all of it? Uh, you Yeah. <laughs> this is like a normal Kiwi thing. You'll just like hop out and say like no. all of it. I, if I had to pick one part, though, oh, I love the Indiana Arch Complex. I really yes. do. Yes. Great it's minds tricky. think alike. I love it as well. Yeah. So what what is it about about it that you love? Well, it's the whole, you know, you've been on full tilt for a K and a half before getting there in the first place, along the narrowest, fastest, bitters road you've got. Then you're absolutely committing the car and the kink to the right. Then you've got this beautifully banked corner, like you talked about in the in the pre-recorded thing we did there where you can take so a lot more speed through there than you than you dare then you slowing it down to the slowest part at night it's terrifying when the sun's just peeking its head over the horizon it looks absolutely stunning in there yep and how many it's, cars do we see off the escape road or in the gravel there it's oh, so easy to get wrong as well yeah because it is such a such a slow part or such a bank you know such a part you can take so, so much speed through at indy just yeah it's very easy to get it wrong mm. and there's nothing in terms of runoff, it's yeah. I gotta say that's probably tied with uh, with my favorite part of the track as well. I love I love the the commitment that you have to take through the kink, and then you have to get the car straight, and you have to brake mm. in a straight line. If you're trying to turn while braking there, that's when you get unsettled, and that's when you end up in the gravel. And you will see a car in the gravel at some point through the 24 hour race at Indianapolis. I can guarantee it. Oh. Uh, but yeah, when you get that right, even in like even in sim racing, which we do a little bit of, even when you get that right in a simulator and you just get it hugged to the bottom of that banking and just shoot out the other side, it just feels so good and it looks so good. Yeah, I, I agree. Yeah. Indianapolis is pretty good. My favorite my favorite part is Turch Rouge, uh, the, the corner that slings you from the permanent racetrack onto the Mulsan Strait. Now, for me, it's, it's the, the way that that corner is built now compared to where it was before, it encourages you to take every little iota of road on the outside. And it is, it's just, uh, it's just one of those corners that you, you watch cars go through there and it just makes you happy. (laughs) (laughs) I think, I think that's the only way I can put it. You come down off a crest. It's the tiniest dab on the brakes. You just tilt the car to the right and if you're in a prototype, it just sticks to the floor. You nail the apex on the inside. The road drops and opens. And then before you know it, you're across the bumps and you're heading to Mulsanne. And it's just... And because it's such a long straight, you're encouraged to take every little bit of that track. And mm. I just... Oh, I just I just love it. One of my favorite is- views, which I can't wait for, is someone at the test day always just sets up a camera on the exit of that... Co- sorry, on the entry of that corner looking towards the exit and you just get cars just going through there and you just get to see them just take that corner at full tilt. Yeah, they sound amazing. Yeah. Oh, if I if I ever get to Le Mans for the test day, that is where I'm going to be. That is where I'm going to be. Yeah. Okay, we'll move on. The next part that is important to talk about is the classes that grace this race. So we've talked a little bit already about prototype versus GT. Now, there's actually four classes of cars that will be racing at this year's Le Mans. 
kind of four and a half, actually. So what that means is that it's not just one motor race that's happening at any time. It's actually four separate races on the same track at the same time with different performance windows for each class. So what is the difference between any of the classes? Okay, I'll start with, well, probably the class I appreciate best, and that's GTE Pro. Because this year, GTE Pro is absolutely going to be an absolute slugfest. For those who don't know what GTE Pro is, it's basically, you get your, you get your supercars, like, or not supercars, you got Aston Martin, Ferrari, Ford, Porsche, BMW, the one I missed, Corvette, of course, who, who make an appearance at the Mon on a part-time basis. Six marks with their cars that have been engineered to go as fast as possible in a straight line while adhering to balance of performance regulations. You get the best drivers in the world in this class. There's, what, 17 of them this year? 17 cars, which yeah, means cars, something which 54, like... 54 drivers. Yeah. Wow, quick maths. Mm. Um, and they're all platinum rated. Yes. They're the, be- they're the best in their field. You can guarantee it's going to be an absolute slugfest here. The balance of performance ensures the cars are within a couple of seconds on track. So the race will come down to pit strategy, keeping it clean, managing the GTE AM traffic, make- managing being overtaken by the prototypes, and simply not making a mistake in the course of 24 hours, which sounds really easy. It, but it's not. It's really not. No, no it's so, not. So these are the cars that are based on the road cars, right? Yes. Um, so you've got your Aston Martin Vantage, you've got your Corvette Chevrolet, you've got your Porsche 911 RSR Calm Down Flood. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> and and, and what, unfortunately, it's swung on for the BMW M8 and the four GTs this season. Yeah, which is a bit of a shame. But they, for at least Ford, they've run a really good four-year, four-and-a-half-year program, um, mm-hmm. which is which has been, yeah, very good on their behalf. And BMW, well... We'll talk about them in our GT podcast a bit later on, and we'll we'll talk about why BMW are doing the things that they're doing. Uh, what about what about one of the prototype classes, Cookie? Can you tell us about LMP1? It is the uh, class that usually will win overall, um, save for potential catastrophe in 2017. Uh, it has done so for the last uh, man um, almost 20 years. Yep. Uh, it's been the mainstay of the uh, prototype category for uh, factory-backed uh, efforts, um, something from Audi, Peugeot, Porsche, and now Toyota. Right now, it contains hybrid uh, vehicles, LMP1 uh, prototypes, as well as uh, privateer non-hybrid prototypes. Um, and realistically, there is a slight difference uh, essentially between the two classes that we'll talk about later, LMP2, where LMP1 cars are usually just a a unlimited uh, monocoque design, essentially where you can design your own monocoque um, and chassis as long as it fits in the regulations, privateer or OEM. Otherwise, um, you have to fit a hybrid if it's an OEM. But uh, everyone is essentially different. There really is no model that you're basing it off of. You're just creating your own uh, prototype car to go as fast as possible. The hybrids themselves utilize, I believe, is it now six megajoules or eight megajoules? I believe it's six now. They pegged it back to six. Uh, they are extremely fuel efficient, uh, and they are uh, pretty hamstrung pegged back because uh, there is only one OEM in the class, Toyota, and uh, they're essentially trying to take on the privateers that uh, had just entered this series in the LMP1 category this year. 
so there is a little bit of discrepancy, I would say, in terms of pace um, and just because of the technology and the amount of uh, energy and money uh, supplied to the teams is just not equal. But it is probably the most electrifying <laughs> I get it. Uh, class just in terms of the uh, pace difference between the slower cars. Uh, these cars uh, have pace between 50 to 60, sometimes 70 kilometers per hour difference on the straights, depending on which car you're passing. And uh, their acceleration is unmatched almost in anything in the world. So uh, these cars hold unique status uh, in any series. But in this one, they, uh, they blow the doors off of every other class so so you've extremely seen, fit for the law you've seen the lmp ones in person haven't you you went to was it sebring where they were racing at the eight hours earlier this year correct so can you describe to me the difference between seeing the hybrid toyota which produces something like what is it 700 horsepower from the combustion engine and a further 500 from the electric motor compared to the one of the privateers which is only producing i think it's around 850 horsepower ish from the uh, from the combustion engine alone can you describe to me the difference between the two uh, it's um, crazy uh, <laughs> unbelievable uh, mind-blowing mind like uh, just it's it's unbelievable I, I can't describe it almost in the in the sense of that you as your assumptions of what you think can accelerate in terms of just like you've you've watched racing you know if you've been at a track you know what the apex is and you know kind of distances so you know, 400 meters down the track, you know, that's a decent amount of, of, of time. And you can kind of just start to eyeball it when you go to tracks enough. So you get a, a variance of speed. Now, I've never seen F1 cars in person yet. Um, I've not had the privilege of making enough oodles of money to attend a F1 race yet in person. So I can't completely say it's the fastest thing I've ever, I've ever seen. But for sure now, I mean, the Toyotas are by far the fastest thing I have ever seen. And I mean, the acceleration out of the corners is just unbelievable and that was i think the main takeaway wasn't wasn't fernando's overtaking you know or just how close the or how fast the toyotas were just on pace and beating everybody it was just looking at them as a left corner exit and it was just gear shift gear shift gear shift and then you know they're almost breaking by the next corner and you're like well hold on that's like 1500 meters down the road what do you like it's <laughs> it honestly doesn't make sense sometimes when you're watching these things as they as they've drive past you it's crazy yeah so look for the toyotas in particular to be bullets out of the slower corners they just get up to speed so quickly and there's just a ridiculous amount of driving talent in the lmp1 class at le mans as well so discounting the toyota team which has i think out of their five drivers oh, sorry out of their six drivers four have f1 experience one has indycar experience and one is a world touring car championship winner Around that, you've got guys who have set fastest laps at the Nürburgring and at Spa-Francorchamps. You've got guys who have done F1 racing or have won classes in lower uh, lower sports cars and WEC. Uh, you've got guys that are experts in IndyCar or other other racing. It is just a mixed bag of the best talent that the world has to offer in motorsports, which is really, really cool. We'll take you through LMP2. So LMP2 is the second uh, prototype class. And this is different in LMP1 in the fact that it has a spec engine and drivetrain. So every car is using the Gibson engine and transmission, uh, which is a V8, which sounds redonkulous. Uh, and on top of that, there is only four approved chassis manufacturers. 
Um, so what this does is this sort of levels the playing field and it makes uh, it puts a heavy em- emphasis on strategy and driver talent as opposed to the outright hardware that you get. Now, the thing is, with this class, uh, it's the top class where you have amateur drivers. So amateur driving is a big thing in sports cars um, because, you know, racing costs a lot of money and sports car racing especially has been built off the legacy of amateurs uh, throughout its history of, of rich people bringing their cars and paying other people to drive them to, to success. And what that means for the WEC is that you must have at least one silver or bronze rated driver in your car and they must do a minimum of six hours throughout the race. So depending on when you put your bronze driver in compared to some of the other people in the class, which include, for example, the likes of, uh, let me find a a name here, John Eric Verne or Paul DeResta uh, race in this class alongside people like David Hennemeyer Hansen, who was the creator of Ruby on Rails. So they're the type of people that would be the amateurs in this class. But uh, David Hennemeyer Hansen himself is actually a very, very accomplished driver. So there's a a significant element of strategy here. There's a significant element of uh, engineering in making sure that your car is the best that it possibly can be. And the, the amateur in the mix makes LMP2 a really fascinating car. And let's not forget... LMP2 is only about 10 seconds a lap slower than the hybrids. These cars are fast cars. Mm. If P2 was a top class, we would be in an absolute awe at just how quick they, they are going. These cars are as fast as the Audi LMP1s from 12 years ago, 10 years ago. That's how fast these cars are. And they was, uh, those Audis were setting like a lap record pace for a lot of time that's how that's how much the progression of technology in a prototype class has gotten and these are meant to be the second string guys it's yeah. crazy just how crazy the top guys are also mm. I should mention this is the only class where there's an actual, an actual tire battle as well yes so for those who have seen uh, who follow more f1 or other other motorsports where there isn't really a tire battle Tyres don't really get talked about a lot in WEC. You kind of have free reign over what you want to choose at any given time. And especially at Le Mans, where it's mostly like straight lines, you won't really see a lot of tyre wear problems. So you might even see teams quadruple stint tyres, which is a bit crazy when you think about it. But that's been the norm at Le Mans for a long time. Um, But yeah, as Kiwi mentioned, there is a tyre war between Michelin and Dunlop. Um, Michelin tend to have the better one lap pace. However, Dunlop are better over a stint. Um, however, on top of that, if it rains at Le Mans and what's the motto about rain at Le Mans? It always rains at Le Mans. It always rains at Le Mans. Expect the, expect the Michelin clad cars to be able to pull themselves up the field because the Michelin is just a little bit better in the wet compared to the Dunlop. But Dunlop's been a lot better in the wet as of late. So, so who knows really? Yeah, who knows? And because you've got 20 cars in this class, 20. That'd be enough for a grid on its own. It's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. It's, if P1 turns into a Toyota Snorfest, P2 is going to be absolutely nuts. <laughs> yes, it will. And, what's the, and, and the last class of car is GTE Am. So basically the same as GTE Pro, but with a mix of amateur drivers, a, a more uh, diluted mix of amateur drivers. Oh, sorry more concentrated mix of amateur drivers. So you've got, you must have one bronze and one silver per car. Uh, so you'll see a lot of 
new up-and-coming drivers or uh, a few older business owner type drivers and then you paired alongside that you've got people like Giancarlo Fisichella and Pedro Lamy so it's a real mixed bag of talent in GTM which actually produces a decent amount of racing I feel hmm. this is the home of the up-and-comers you have drivers like Matt Campbell in this class Julian Anlauer actually sharing car this year um you know the guys who are the Porsche juniors the junior drivers who are going to be in the pro cars in the future or potentially a prototype mm. this is where they cut their teeth exactly uh, alongside and, those who've been here for many many years yeah and those guys being like the the michael wainwrights the paul dalalanas uh those sort of guys who have just been who are just yeah right racing sports cars for fun i think that's really cool so so why is there such an emphasis on amateur racing at le mans and in the wec and in sports cars uh it helps pay the bills yeah okay that's yeah that's pretty. <laughs> that's pretty that's fair. a TLDR version. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> but amateur racing has always been a part of Le Mans. Every it's an expensive race to run. Let's be honest here. Mm. And you need these amateurs to fund these teams who just want to go have a bit of fun and you know drive around a French countryside for twenty four hours. And, and what I, better way to do it than at Le Mans? Yeah, I. I think it's actually great that they have these classes set aside for the amateurs to do that because, as I mentioned. Amateur racing in sports cars is, it, it's it's part of the legacy of sports cars, you know, we, we sports cars has always been uh, not not a quite a run what you brung sort of thing, but it's always been, uh, we'll, we'll try to fit you in in a class that suits your performance. And so what that means is that it's a lot of people bringing their own cars to, to race against other cars in their class. Uh, so that wouldn't have been able to happen without the people who own those cars and funded those cars, bringing them in and filling out these grids. Because, like, if it was just an LMP1 race, what we've got eight cars in LMP1. That's not that's not a race for twenty four hours. It's not a race. On the other hand, we've got a sixty two car grid for Le Mans, and it's because we have four races happening at once, and a lot of that, in fact, half of that, is because of more than half of that, in fact, is because of amateur drivers funding their efforts to win this race. It's crazy. It's brilliant. But what does that do on track? How do, how does how does say Fernando Alonso at the seat of this TSO fifty Toyota that's a bullet out of corners? How does that change the way he has to drive the car? It does mean that at times he doesn't necessarily have to drive at one hundred percent. He's got to drive at ninety five to navigate traffic and. Traffic management is a massive part of this race because it's very, we've seen it in the past. You get it wrong, you're going to have a monumental accident. Yes, exactly right. And, you know, as you mentioned, it's a 24-hour event. So sometimes the better choice is to sit behind a car and lose 3, 4, 5, 10, 18 seconds in a mm. tight section versus trying to dive for a hole that isn't quite there and making contact with a slower car. And we've seen, as you mentioned monumental accidents I, I think the first one that comes to mind for me is alan mcnish in 2011 where he almost ejected from the track uh in the forest s's or before the forest s's coming down from the bridge because he tried to dive down the inside of an amateur ferrari that wasn't quite aware that alan mcnish was coming and that's the risk that you take driving in in a prototype against amateur drivers mm-hmm and then there's the Mike Rockefeller one that we didn't actually see because he just crashed out a camera shot. But the devastation that we saw from that, re- because he was, was it a washer as well? 
Uh, it no, was a, it was a Ferrari. Another Ferrari, big, yeah. That's what I meant, sorry. Those Ferraris that was Ferrari. so, so rogue. Mm. <laughs> and and I, oh, I should clarify, we don't mean amateur as no. in, like, they don't know what they're doing. These guys are still fantastic racing drivers, and, you know, we should pay a lot of respect to them, but they're not professionals. They're not the guys like the Fernando Alonso's whose job is to race, to be in a simulator, to be training all the time. These guys are, yeah, businessmen often, or... Uh, you know, sometimes even movie stars. Patrick Dempsey raced right. for a few years at Le Mans. So I've got an example. So the, yep. the the best way that you can put this is basically it's a pro am golf tournament, and essentially where the the pro ams are tied to each other, like in terms of their swings, they're they're having to like take over for a certain amount for here or there. So the pro, you know, can only go so far as his amateur is playing with him. So there's almost that kind of lead and pull aspect to a lot of the driver um, lineups that are in the AM, uh, the AM classes. So for that aspect, I don't know. It's uh, I like that. Mm, that's actually a very good, very good way to, um, to put it. And it's not just the prototypes weaving their way through the traffic. It's knowing how to be passed as well. And I think that's something that's severely underrated in an AM driver's performance. Part of being an AM driver is, not crashing it and handing it over to the professionals who can then carry you back up the field. So yeah, getting being able to be passed effectively is almost as important as passing effectively for the for the faster cars. Can you think of anyone that is especially good at being passed or especially not good at being passed? Mike Renner, right? Because he gets passed a lot. <laughs> yeah, uh, that's Nico Lapierre, who likes to, I don't know, crash. He only likes to crash at the seat of a prototype, a P1 rather. So uh, Toyota P1, yeah, at, at that, yeah, yeah. yeah so, fun. so yeah, it's poor Cookie and his Toyota. Um, uh, n- every single time Nicolas Lapierre has been at the seat of a Toyota P1, he's found his way into the wall. The three years that he's been in P2s, the last three years, he's actually won the event. And what class is he racing this year? Anyone? A P2. He is racing a P2. So. If you if you like your French P2 drivers, uh, keep an eye on Nicolas Lapier in the Alpine car. Wee oui, wee. Oui. Wee oui, wee. Oui. Well, um, I don't like Roman Rusinov. He's not my favorite M LMP2 driver. That would probably have to be David Heinemeyer Hansen. Mm. Uh, I like DHH. I followed him pretty much. Literally, okay, this is how it goes because it's. I remember watching this 2000, I think it's 12 or 13 Baltimore LMS and. While he had a good race, I think he made contact late into the wall and like the entire rear suspension was gone, but he was just driving the thing as much as he could just to try to get back. Like, but it was, the car was just shimming everywhere and he was just like, he looked like a race car driver, like who's just ticked off, needs to get it back. But like the amount of fire that I saw from him just driving that, and especially that year, he was exploding in the scene for LMP2 on LMS. And uh, I just have been a fan of his ever since, and he's just been quick. Yeah, one of the big challenges with traffic, if you do have an incident, is the fact that you have to get the car home. That's one of the other separating factors between Le Mans and other endurance races. In other endurance races, for example, at the Nürburgring, you can get taken on the flatbed to your garage and get fixed up and get back out there. But at Le Mans... You have to get the car to the pits. And that's why incidents in traffic are so much more uh, detrimental at Le Mans than they are at other racetracks. Because Le Mans, as we mentioned, is a big track. It is a big track. It is 13.6 kilometers. And if you have an issue at the wrong spot, 
Cookie, tell us what happens if you have an issue at the wrong spot. Well, <laughs> then you have to try to get back, or can't because you don't have enough juice to get all the way back the two years in a row that you needed to get back so uh, you could win the race. I'm so glad I threw yeah. to you on that. Yeah, if you Thank can't you. get back, you're stuffed. You have to sit there and you have to abandon your car. Yep. If you have a wrench, you can work with a wrench. But I, actually, I don't know. I don't think they allow no, they, any more toolkits, do they? Yep. No, most cars will have toolkits and phones in there. Inside okay. the yeah. car. That's the thing. It will be, yep. have to be inside the car. If you get given assistance, you get disqualified. And this actually happened to one of the most famous drivers, uh, Jackie X, back in 1982. Or it might have been earlier than that. I think it might have been the late 70s. Anyway, he he broke a component on the car, had to get out the car and try and fix it. And they noticed, the, the officials noticed that he was given a part from a crew member that had made his way to that part of the circuit. And he got disqualified from the lead of the race. The following year... The same part broke on the car, but they had a spare in the car, and X was able to replace it, and he went on to win. That is the sort of thing that happens at Le Mans, and that is why Le Mans is such a big engineering challenge. And the guys and teams that succeed in this engineering challenge, the guys like Jackie X, who's won six times overall at the seat of Fords and Porsches, Derek Bell, who's won five times at the seat of Porsches, um... You know, Porsche themselves have won, what, 18, 19 now? 19 overall times at Le Mans? Yes, going that's, to 20. That's crazy. That is absolutely crazy. But they're, they're easily the most successful brand at Le Mans, and that they are the legendary brand of Le Mans. But Audi for a while was looking like they could could come close to overthrowing them, didn't they? <laughs> oh, that, that early prototype era was some of the craziest racing we've seen, but Audi always just managed to find their way to the front. Yeah, they were just the consummate professionals every single time. Yeah, from the R8 to the R10, the diesel, then the R15, R18 with the hybrids as well. Yeah, they They just just knew how to get it done. They took diesel power and hybrid power to their first victories at Le Mans. I don't think that's something that can be understated. Those were basically brand new technologies for racing applications, and they took them to victory in their first year in each case. Uh, and, you know, their their driver lineup of uh, Tom Christensen, Alec Manish, and Emmanuel Piro is one of the most famous trios of drivers because of their success in this race. I think the other famous trio of drivers for Audi is the Lotterer fazler Trellieway trio, which has done amazing things uh, at the seat of Audis in the past. I think they've won, I think, twice together but they've been three times together three times together okay but they've been in the hunt more than that almost every year that they've been together but now of course with Audi breaking up they're not they're not racing together anymore which is a bit of a shame you mentioned Tom Christensen though there's the reason we called him Mr. Le Mans is what nine of the bloody things six in a row (laughs) that's crazy imagine winning the biggest motor race of of the world six times in a row (laughs) He just knows how to get it done around here, as you'd expect. But even going back a bit, you have people, like you mentioned, Jackie X, Derek Bell. You know, that was another partnership. They won, what, three as as a pairing? They won, they won two as a pairing, got close a third time, and then after they split up, they, got six, they had success in other pairings as well. 75, 81, and 82. That's three. Oh, well, there you go. I was wrong. 
Um, but other drivers as well, like Henry Pescarolo has won yeah, here. Yeah. And he's still, is he still involved or is he taking the back seat now? But he was involved for so long in the Porsche program as well. Mm. No, he's re- he's retired. He's retired. He's retired. Yeah. I was going to say, we, do, we, we did uh, Olivier uh, Gembedine as well. I think uh, he's probably one of the, the before 1950, he's probably one of the better uh, endurance racers at Le Mans. I believe he won three times. Well, wow. I'm just trying to think of a little bit more uh, like younger guys, but uh, a lot of earlier success as well that I, I think we're just kind of with the age, you know, the passage of time. And a lot of too is just film, and we just have we're more exposed to more of it. You know, you know more of the 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 fifties, sixties, yeah. yeah. And there's uh, there's a lot of really talented drivers that race at Le Mans even before then too. Mm. And that's another thing about this place that's fantastic. It doesn't just attract legends. You know, it's it's attracted the likes of Martin Brundle who won at the seat of a Mazda. It's attracted the likes of uh oh mike hawthorne who was a formula one driver who came over to win with jaguar it's attracted these legends but also creates legends and they're not just the drivers not just as we've mentioned you know jackie x and andre lotterer and tom christensen and whatever but the teams and the the engineers uh like i i think sports car racing is one of the few sports where you can know the engineers and know the team organizers almost better than you do the drivers Mm. Because uh, they have they have a personality as well, and they bring that to the cars. And I think one of my favorite things about the the engineering side of things is the comments of Ulrich Boreski, uh, the Audi diesel engine designer, um, when they made the uh, LMP1. They changed it from petrol powered to diesel powered, uh, and he he said there were there was complaints about the sound. They said it didn't sound like a race car anymore. And he's like, no, no, the quiet sound is efficient. It's 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 a sexy sound. And it's like, wait, what? <laughs> That's a direct quote. You can watch Truth in Twenty Four and see that. And make sure you watch Tw- Truth in Twenty Four if you haven't, people. Come yeah, on. it's fantastic. But you- what what's your favorite era of race cars at this place, or your favorite event? Uh, I mean the uh, the definitely the the Titanic races between Ferrari and Ford were pretty awesome. Then followed by a slight Porsche dominance. Which then led into a, French and not Porsche. Porsche dominance. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I I definitely think for the for how Wild West it it, it got the early seventies were probably the pinnacle of what you would say is a classic Le Mans um, and what the old school Le Mans was, where there was an endurance factor, there was a there was a hare and a tortoise, and you know there there was a specific strategy you would race to. Um, and there was there were specific parameters and things would go wrong that you had no idea what to do with. And everything came in left field like it did 30 years ago, but now it came at 200 miles an hour. And so for me, I love that era. Beyond that, I mean, the the, the Group C era, mm. the, the last five years of that going into the 3.5 liter era was probably was you know is is in terms of competition, that's that's got to be the best um, where, where you had there was aspects of each car that were good at, at certain points and Porsche just naturally sold more and and had a better chassis than most but you had uh, just there were so many good cars that produced wins and earned their reputation in the same time that you had such dominance from the, the 962 and I think like that that speaks more so to to that era than maybe in the 70s where we really only know the 917 and maybe the 512 and that's really it we don't know much maybe the, the Ford GT40 Nothing really else too much is memorable. The Matras, as dominant as they were, we don't really remember those. No, so, we don't. 
So I think for me, it's probably Group C, which has had the most impact for Lamont and for me and just and for what I've growing up knew what, what a prototype was. That was what Group C was to me. And so if somebody asked me that definition, that's the first thing I think of. And that, and that wasn't even when I grew up. It's just when I the thing that I associated with when it came to Lamont. So for me, that was, I'd say 1985 to 1990, the group. The Group C area or era or the end of the Group C era, or GTP era was was probably my favorite. Yeah, just for a little bit more context than what Cookie's saying, in Group C, that period between 1985 to 1990, you had factory efforts from Jaguar, Porsche, Cougar, who was running a Porsche engine, Aston Martin, Spice running a Cosworth engine, Nissan, Lancia, and Toyota, and Sauber uh, running a Mercedes. So those names there are serious names in motorsport and they were all chasing an overall win at one time uh, in one race or in a a group of races. And that was the the height of Group C and that was what made Group C so special. I'll agree with that. I reckon Group C is some of the best racing. That was because of how good the regulations were at the time. The regulations were basically, you get this much fuel for the race, you can use it however you want, but if you go over that, you're disqualified. And so that meant that you had a bunch of different solutions to that problem, and it drove some very, very good technological improvements and uh, development in the direction of making engines capable of running at lower fuels. And I rec- actually reckon my favorite event is the 1983 event. Now, if you look at it, it's just a boring factory Porsche 1-2. But the story behind that event, the way that the finish came about with both of the factory cars basically breaking down meters past the finish line, I think that's just one of the classic Le Mans stories. And if you, if you're not sure, if you haven't uh, read up on uh, some of the older Le Mans events, We've actually got, uh, around the sub at the moment, a, a Le Mans Legends uh, celebration where people are writing up race reports for old events. So you can check some of those out. And some of the work that people have done so far has been fantastic. I actually reckon my favorite era is the the most recent, the 2014 to 2017 sort of era. Because that kind of, with the, with the hybrid... Uh, the hybrid power and the hybrid regulations that kind of gave the same sort of feeling to what group C was. It was all about maximizing the energy that you can use per lap, getting as close as that limit as you can. And you had factory efforts from Porsche and Audi and Toyota and Nissan for one, one event. And it produced some great racing at one stage. We had 12 factory prototypes in one race. Like that's phenomenal. And it's, it's a little sad that we don't have that anymore. And it was a case of three different approaches to, to getting the same result. And you have cars that were stronger at one point than the other, but then the other car would blow past it on the straights. And it was fantastic racing. And it's sad it's gone, but we'll get we'll get there again. Hopefully. Fingers crossed. Hopefully. hopefully soon. We'll definitely get there again, but hopefully soon. What about you, Kiwi? What is your favorite race or favorite era of racing at this track? For me, I mean, the... the Everything you talked about is pretty similar, but for me, for drama and everything around it, 2016 and 2017 just can't be beat. Yeah. I, yeah. There's <laughs> <laughs> really no other way to put I mean, 2016, we all know the story about that, and I won't spoil the post that's coming in on the sub. But 2017, 
was very much a case of last man standing, and we were so close to having a P2 car winning overall. It was it was something phenomenal. I don't think I've ever seen five out of the five factory cars. Well, all of them had problems. All of them ha- mm. suffered breakdowns or failures throughout the race. Mm. And you could argue they didn't need to because they probably could have gone at nine and a half tenths and still had a good result. Mm. But they wanted to win. And there's that last little push that made they push their cars just a little bit too far. Yeah, so 2017 was, was a unique race. 2016 as well. And if you don't know about the 2016 race, just... How do I put this without spoiling? It came back. It came down to the last lap. We'll put it that way. It came down to the last lap, mm-hmm. and that is yeah, probably one of the most heartbreaking finishes in Le Mans history. The highlight of 2017 as well was not just the prototype, the GTE Pro battle yes. at the end of 2017. Well, just throughout the whole race, but the final lap of 2017 for GT. That is one of the best last laps I've seen of any race. Mm. And that's also, that's also a good thing about multi-class racing. If there is something that's a little slow or a little uh, boring in one class, often another class will pick it up and have something happening on track. Just quickly, before we continue on, uh, we've had to say goodbye to Cookie Monster FL, so it is just myself and Kiwi Chris 1709 finishing off this podcast, and we'll go ahead and talk about how this 24-hour event is structured, because it is a little unique in the world of motorsports in that it is not just the event itself, which is the big deal. It's a full two-week endurance festival, basically, a sports car festival, and it all starts... Uh, at tomorrow at the time of recording with the Le Mans test. So how does the Le Mans test day work? So the, the Le Mans test day, really important for teams and drivers. It's eight hours of running split into two four-hour sessions. It's a chance for the rookie drivers to get their five laps in. It gives a chance to, for teams and drivers to get used to the track, especially those that are new to this season. And it's just a great chance to blow out the cobwebs and see what you've got. It's also good for the ACO and FIA because they can do some BAP changes to the GTE classes or some EUT changes if they need to, Hmm. to try and bring the field closer together. Yeah, and that's actually a really, really important point. And that's probably going to be the biggest thing that people will focus on on the test days, not only making sure that all the rookies get their laps in, but that the GTE classes especially are closer together than what they, well, sorry, as close as they can be. Um, So, uh, if you are going to look for anything on the test day, firstly, there'll be a lot of pretty pictures and a lot of testing videos, um, not live streamed, unfortunately, but there will be some sort of material afterwards that will come out. So it's a great first chance to have a look at all the cars. Uh, and then secondly, pay close, close attention to the lap times and stint lengths that the GT cars and the prototypes can get because they will become very important numbers when it comes to race day. Now, Mm -hmm. once the test day is all run and done, that's when the real fun starts. And if I ever get to Le Mans, I definitely want to be there for scrutineering and presage in the town centre starting Monday of the race week. It's so unique to this event. We don't have it anywhere else. Scrutineering in the heart of town, almost like a living museum in a way. Mm. Get up and close to these these cars as they're undergoing their checks. It's just... It's a really awesome thing they do. Really good part of history because they've always done it. And something I hope they keep doing. Yeah, it's basically a festival in town where all the cars get checked and they do mm. like the driver photos, the the team photos. Uh, they do all the special stuff at, at that. And, and yeah, it's 
like the town gets built into a stadium basically it's it's gorgeous and it's uh, i the, the atmosphere looks phenomenal i can't wait to one day be in that crowd and be in uh the scrutineering pressage and just being able to watch it and be a part of it it's going to be mm. awesome yeah. And then I, I think a lot of people don't actually realize the township of Le Mans is actually really, really close to the track. Well, yeah, it's right where Tertrouge is. If you just go like two minutes to the left instead of down to the right, you end up in the town center. It's right there. Mm. Yeah, the old track used to go into the town center. That's what um, Cookie was talking about before, is it being yeah. like linked towns as a as a circuit. That's That's where the old track used to go. So... Once you've got the scrutineering and the pressage out the way, then it is practice on Wednesday. We've got four hours of practice Wednesday afternoon, and then mm-hmm. after that, it's qualifying. And qualifying yes. at Le Mans is unique compared to WEC events as well. It is something that's different to everywhere else that we go to on the calendar. Yes, so qualifying for all the WEC events, two-lap average from two drivers. Here, it's one lap. One lap time for pole position, which you can achieve in any of the three qualifying sessions, all of which go for two hours. Yeah, so there's two hours on Wednesday night, uh, so between 10 and midnight, then two hours Thursday between 7 and 9, and then a final two hours on Thursday night between 10 and midnight. So it's all night qualifying. And because, of course, Le Mans is in the Northern Hemisphere, uh, which is important for you know myself and Kiwi, who, who are freezing our butts off at the moment, it's... Very warm, and the sun sets very late. So you'll actually see these drivers starting at 10 p.m. in that session in the twilight and going on through till midnight. And there's a lot of very important little things to get right in that qualifying session if you are going for that one lap. Mm-hmm. First of all, you've got to make sure you get that space. You've got to get yourself away from traffic just so you can get through that one lap and without too many hassles. Mm. You got the, what happens above, the participation. I pronounced that wrong, didn't I? You're close. Try it again. <laughs> Precipitation. Hey, well done. Hey. If it's, going, if it's wet, cold, not conducive to lap time, you're more likely to spend that lap session testing your car out and seeing what you can do in a long stint as opposed to going for the Banzai lap. And that's the thing as well. These these qualifying sessions, they aren't they aren't these short, you know, twenty minute sessions that you'd see at other racetracks for the WEC. These are qualifying practice sessions, basically. They're two hour long sessions which you can use in any way you want. And because you're only setting the grid off of one lap, that one lap isn't actually that important in the grand scheme of the six hours you're allowed on track. Because remember, mm-hmm. it's a twenty four hour race and you only get a cumulative what? 18 hours total of testing, and that's including the test day. Mm. In that time, you've got to get your rookie laps done. You've got to have every driver do at least five laps. Every driver do a lap in night conditions. There's a lot of things to tick off that checklist before you start thinking, okay, that one lap that's going to put us on the grid. Yeah, and that's why it's so important to use those qualifying sessions wisely. Because it is six hours, there's plenty of time for you to get that lap in. Yeah, and we've seen in the past... It, sometimes drivers get that lap in straight away and that's what they sit with for the entire entire qualifying or they do it right at the very end, uh, last thing on Thursday night, uh, like right before midnight. And I remember, I think it was 2017, the GTs were all on track in that last little bit trying to set that lap time and we dropped the lap record by I think two or three seconds in 20 minutes mm-hmm. before midnight. It was just phenomenal how mm-hmm. how that all worked out. And yeah, it's all about finding the right conditions, the right weather, the right space on track, and getting that little bit of luck as well. 
you do get one last chance on track before the race starts, and that is the Saturday morning warm-up, which is just a short 45-minute session just to basically uh, test everything before they get put in the race. Because much like other endurance races around the world, uh, we know, sorry, Kiwi and I see this a lot in the V8 supercars when they come to the Bathurst 1000, you basically change everything once you've uh, done those qualifying sessions because you want the freshest components in the car for that uh for that race but you don't want to see people throwing it off in the warm-up do you and we have seen no, that we've, we've seen it plenty of times it's, i think it was a section of three years in a row where we started with one less card and qualified because someone had binned it in the last quality or warm-up session yeah and that's another thing that's uh that you've got to keep in mind you can you can lose the race before you even start it, and we have seen cars written off. I think was a uh, Corvette one year where Jan Magnussen went in the wall um, yeah, in the Porsche, Porsche Curse. Yep. yep, and you know if you can't get the car out on Sunday for the or Saturday for the race, then you get a did not start and you get a big fat zero. There's all these little things that it, it they don't sound like much, but for an event as big as Le Mans, they all they all take their toll. They do. And one thing we didn't mention as well, that I think is important to mention, these qualifying sessions, they're on Wednesday and Thursday. There's no track running at all on Friday. And why is that? Because there's some giant parade through the centre of Le Mans. Yeah, traditionally, uh, the, the Friday is a rest day for track action, um, mm-hmm. which allows everyone to sort of recuperate. And so for, for the people watching as well, to just sort of oh, breathe. But yeah, that means and that for, uh, when they come to the track Saturday morning, they haven't done any running for two days. Mm. So that warm-up is critically important. It's also good in a way it gives you a bit of extra time to repair any damage from qualifying. Just a little bit of extra uniqueness to the event. Mm. I think the only other place where I can think of that has a rest day on the Friday is Monaco, actually, for the F1. Mm. But other series still run. Okay. Yeah. Well, there you go. I did not know that. So finally, 3 p.m. on Saturday and the race starts. Now, this is... Yeah, this is where it all comes together. Now, there's a few little landmarks that uh, we use as markers throughout the race just to sort of keep track of, you know, the the first little milestone of like where you want to get to and then where you want to get to and then, you know, reevaluate at each of these steps. And I think the first one is getting from 3 p.m. to sunset to I think it's 10.30 at night when the sun finally sets, once you get get to that landmark and you start the night running, then you finally feel that you're in the race. Yeah. We've seen it before. The first th- two hours, three hours, especially can cause chaos. We've seen cars go out on the first lap so many times. We've seen collisions. We've seen a couple of years ago, there was a monumental shunt that took out four or five cars in the rain on the Multine Strait. Mm, yeah. and So getting through that first period is... Not easy. By yeah, and that's that's only a uh, a single World Endurance Championship event. That six hour period. That's what that's a mm. normal race. But that's only you know the start of the the twenty four hours. I think the next one that's important to get to is through the night because that night period anything can happen. Anything from oh, yes. uh, you know headlight failures to amateur drivers not seeing you to fatigue as well fatigue would be a big thing overnight especially with the the fanfare and the parade that is Le Mans imagine trying to to get some quiet moments to sleep before getting in the car at two in the morning yeah good luck yeah exactly but one once sunset breaks and you hit that second landmark 
then it gets serious. Yep. That's when it's just head down, bum up, just get into that rhythm. Because night running, I find, if you fall out of the rhythm, it's really hard to get back into it. Mm. Just want to be almost metronomic. And people like Andre Lotterer, uh, Fernando Alonso are great at that, just getting in that rhythm, sitting, being consistent, being fast while doing so as well. Exactly right. And we've seen races won in the night hours, not because of not because of like any heroics or crazy passes or anything, but it is that consistency of putting in those lap times because they're normally some of the best conditions to do consistent lap times because the track is slowly cooling off, but the air temperature with all the cars going around stays a little warmer and you're able to just get into that rhythm and use the best of the track. And of course, the track's rubbering up while this is happening as well. Now, once you get to the morning, something beautiful happens. Oh, yeah. You reach happy hour. You reach happy hour. Now, okay, so why is it called happy hour? Because the track condition's just warming up slightly. The sun's just peeking over the horizon. Usually it's not too wet, and the cars can tend to go the fastest they've gone all weekend. Exactly right. And it is a, a, the perfect combination of no sunlight on the track, but the track's still hot and there's a lot of grip and the air is cool, so the engine's happy, the tires are warm, they're happy, and of course you get that mental push of being back in the daylight. We've gotten through the night. And then it's just a matter of getting to the finish line. But, (laughs) of course, from dawn, which is about, what, six in the morning in Mm -hmm. Le Mans, in the middle of summer, that's still a long way to go to get to three in the afternoon. And it can all go horribly pear-shaped in that time. And we've seen that in the past with Paul Delalana shoving his lesson off with an hour and a bit to go. It was actually 45 uh, minutes. 45 minutes that happened, yeah. 45 minutes to go. I thought it was a bit later in the race. Um, we were no Toyota. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and we've seen it before as well. Cars have gone to the Mosan Chicanes with an hour and a half to go. Distinct remember of P2 doing it. Yeah, and it's... You kind of get it's it's like that false finish line getting to the sunlight. You think, oh, we're almost there, but you're not. It's still another ra- like normal WEC race and a half to get through. It's basically a Sebring you got to get through. Yeah, exactly right. In endurance racing, we talk about buying your ticket to the last hour, and that's where that comes into effect. In that stretch between sun- daylight and two p.m., you got to buy your ticket to the last hour and make sure you're still in the hunt as you get to the end, because that last hour, anything can happen. Mm -hmm. What are some examples that you can remember in recent years of the anything can happen phrase? Well, besides Toyota, we've already talked about (laughs) Toyota. Besides Toyota. Besides Um, 2016. What year was it that the, that the rebellion's bodywork was modified to the point of being illegal? That was 2017, because that was the year that they were running in P2. So what happened there was they couldn't start the car in the pit, so they cut a hole in the bodywork, and then they, in post-race scrutineering, they found that hole in the bodywork and disqualified them for being out of homologation. It was crazy. It was like anything, unlike anything I'd seen at Le Mans before. Yes, and and they also tried to cover it up, which you know is a bit of a no. No, definitely not. But yeah, that happened with like 22 and a half hours done in the race, I think, when yeah, the starter motor first failed. It's all, it was all right at that very end, right at the very limits of what that car could handle. Um, another example I remember is uh, in 2015, 
the leading KCMG car in P2, lost two laps to its chasers just by being involved in other people's incidents. So they had a uh, a Nissan P1 car go off in front of them and they had to go off the track to avoid that and they got stuck in the gravel at Arnage. Uh, they, they had to go through the Mulsan chicanes. They had to go through one of them because a GT car off went in front of them, like went off in front of them. And they lost, yeah, two laps. And so they only ended up winning by a lap when they had at one point a two and a half lap advantage. And at that point in time, when the race is getting towards the end and everyone's looking towards the finish line, yeah, you want to stay away as far away from other cars as possible almost. And then, of course, you've got the example of 1966. <laughs> yeah, which we've already <laughs> talked about. The classic one-two finish that was actually gifted to the car behind. Bloody Kiwis. <laughs> and yeah, and then that final run to the flag, it's... Even even just watching it, you feel like you achieved something if you've been up all night, like I probably will be. Which I definitely will be. Definitely. I already, already, already put in my lead form for Monday. <laughs> brilliant. Brilliant form, Kiwi. So, how do we watch this? Where do we watch this? Well, if you're lucky enough to live somewhere that you can actually access the Eurosport, it'll be on Eurosport flag to flag and all throughout. The WEC streaming app will be operationable question mark. Probably operationable, but with some technical difficulties likely. But again, it's a good way to watch. Radio Le Mans will definitely be covering it as in the name. Yeah. Uh, but that is only audio streaming. There's audio, audio streaming, plus I'll probably have a, a video of them in the com box if you want to watch. For me, I'll be watching it via the app because KO doesn't have Eurosport. But for 10, for, but for 10 euro, it's not too bad. It is pretty good, uh, the app, provided it works. And that is always the question mark. So make sure you've got everything set up before you d- jump in on the app because the last thing you want to do is be scrambling and ha- 10 minutes before race start trying to get it all working. Um, mm-hmm. Another thing that's really important that I find for endurance races, and especially for something like Le Mans, is having live timing up. So there's uh, the, oh, yes. the WC offers a live timing server, so you can see the lap times as they're coming up. And we've also got someone on the sub who does their own live timing server, which will be linked in the race threads and is linked in the, the big info post. And That is so, so much. There's so much more you can do with that timing. And, and it's a brilliant way to follow the race, especially in the slower parts because it means that you're able to sort of map out where everything's going and what what is actually happening on track based on the lap times as they're coming in. And it's fascinating to watch a gap fluctuate between two cars, you know, 20, 30, 40 seconds apart that comes down over the course of an hour and a half or spreads out over the course of an hour and a half just through the, the information on the timing screen. So I'd say that's an invaluable part of watching uh, watching an endurance race. On top of that, we, of course, at uh, wec have a Discord server, a uh, great way to interact with other people watching. Um, we've got a competition going on, uh, a fantasy WEC competition. So that's a great way to get involved in following some of the other classes. If you normally just focus on the overall, I think it's a better idea to have something that keeps you interested in each I'm, class. I'm going to parrot something that Graham Goodwin said here and what you've said. Just pick a car in the other classes to follow. Yeah. It's, it's, it's as simple as that, really. Yeah. Yeah. Whether you like the drivers, whether you like the paint scheme, whether you like the team name, whatever, just pick, or whether you like your number, just pick a car, follow it, and, and just see what happens. Another outlet. Yeah. yeah. 
because the overall battle won't always be interesting and you will lose a lot by not having a look at what's happening in some of the other classes. Yeah, on top of that, uh, we have we will have two further podcasts on uh, Endurance Chat. One will be an analysis of the GT field, and one will be analysis of the prototype field. So that will take you through every car, every team, every driver, and giving our best opinions and best thoughts on who the guys to follow are and why that is, and who we reckon is going to win. We have been fantastically wrong with our predictions in the past. <laughs> so don't and take that tradition wrong, continue. Yeah, don't take it too seriously. But we do we do try to have a good think about these things. Uh, and finally, we'll, of course, have our race threads on Reddit where you can talk and interact with other people. Uh, there's also, of course, Twitter. You can do all that sort of stuff. And it is just going to be an interesting, enjoyable experience here on r slash wec and if you're a new listener or if you're not uh not a subscriber to r slash wec come along and join and just see what it's like for one event it'll probably be pretty hectic but it's it's a great way to share a passion in this sort of sort of space yes indeed and if you are new don't be scared we don't bite i just recommend you just hide for an hour around midnight (laughs) oh no (laughs) we're not doing that again (laughs) <laughs> just quickly other events on at Le Mans uh, include the Road to Le Mans which is LMP3 which is like LMP2 but babies and uh, GT3 cars uh, which is like GTE but babies but babies yeah so it's it's basically a feeder series to the future of Le Mans and Ferrari Challenge will be on track they have a single race for Ferrari Challenge in on Saturday morning uh, two races for Road to Le Mans one on Saturday morning one on Thursday night uh, before the qualifying sessions so that'll be on track as well and I think that is everything that you need to know for this year's 24 hours of Le Mans. Thank you to Cookie who came along earlier and then had to leave thank you very much Kiwi Chris for coming along on this journey with me Uh, thank you Flood and thank you very much for listening everyone peace out. This one's for you Cookie Gazoo Good morning, good afternoon, good morning, good afternoon, good evening, everyone. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, good morning. Oh, sorry, I just wanted to do that. <laughs> You're an awesome. Insufferable douchebag. You're an awesome. I hate you uh, so goddamn much. Good morning, good afternoon.